Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Hey, everyone, and welcome back to Alpha Chat, the FT's business and economics podcast. I'm Cardiff Garcia. A quick note for those of you listening that next week we're going to be taping a long extended interview with the FT's chief economics commentator, Martin Wolf, about his book, The Shifts and the Shocks. But Martin's also agreed to take some questions from listeners. So if you want Martin to answer one of your questions, call us at 917-551-5012. That's a U.S. line. You can also email us at alphachat at ft.com. We'd love to hear from you. I'm sure Martin would love to get your questions. But for now, let's get on with today's show. Well, I'm as entertained as anyone by this personal back and forth about the history of Donald and Carly's career. For the 55-year-old construction worker out in that audience tonight who doesn't have a job, who can't fund his child's education, i got to tell you the truth. They could care less about your careers. That was Chris Christie at Wednesday's Republican presidential debate. It was an abysmal, depressing affair. I can't believe I watched all three hours, but we're going to talk about it with the FT's media correspondent, Shannon Bond. We're also going to talk about some of the candidates' economics platforms. After that, YouTube stars, do they present a threat to the traditional Hollywood star-making model? Are they going to start challenging studios in the way that they make movies? And then finally, the Fed decides to hold rates. I know you're tired of talking about this. So am I, but it's kind of important. So we're going to talk about it with FT Alphaville's Matt Klein. Stick around. It's going to be a lot of fun. On Wednesday night, the Republican candidates for president in the U.S. had a debate on CNN, and it was an abysmal affair. I'm joined by Shannon Bond, U.S. media correspondent, who's also going to be covering some politics this year. Shannon, how (laughs) bad was that? Well, it was kind of a torture chamber, and it was sort of endless, right? It just went on and on. Should should add, it it lasted for three hours. Right. Okay. I almost Uh, felt bad for them at the end. They all looked pretty tired. I didn't feel bad for them. It was there was there was so little substance in this debate. But in a way, I don't entirely blame them either. CNN had this kind of weird approach to this debate where they'd try to encourage the candidates to go at each other, which meant that for long stretches, it felt like there was no moderator. Right. They just sort of let them hit out. But that's mean that's what makes good TV ratings. Right. So what have we learned this election from Donald Trump? People want to see this sort of over the top craziness. People want to see them hitting each other. You know, Trump has been out there on on Twitter, on Facebook, you know, making making these videos, making fun of people like Jeb Bush, you know, people and those play really well. And CNN is a TV network that wants ratings to sell their advertising. So but it's, it's like fast food. I mean, you know, yeah. people like it. It's not <laughs> nutritious and they don't want it. They don't want a whole lot of it. They wanted it first. All right. But they don't want to just keep eating fast food endlessly. And you know what? I'm curious to know what the ratings were like in the last hour of that debate yeah. or the last even the last two hours. I'll bet they weren't that good. Well, we know um, Bernie Sanders turned it off. So Bernie Sanders, the Democratic <laughs> 
slash socialist independent candidate uh, started to live tweet it, but but at 10.30 said he was going to it's bed. faded, right, yeah. <laughs> and it um, went on, for, I think, for approximately another 10 hours. So. Here's, what, here's what's frustrating about it, and I want to tell our listeners that we had intended to make this segment all about the substance. What did we learn in this debate? And in particular, economic issues. This is a business and economics podcast. I wanted to talk about what the candidate said on the economy. Turns out the answer is not much, but let's cover the not much for a second, okay? I'm starting to wonder if it's not time for a new kind of conservative agenda, right? Actually, I should take that back. I'm not starting to wonder. I think I've known that for a while, as many, many, many others have. Okay, I'm starting to wonder if the Republican Party will soon be embracing a different kind of conservative agenda, right? So what I mean by that is this. For a very long time, the standard Republican platform was lower taxes, cut spending, do it across the board, and don't worry if a large amount of the benefits accrue to rich people because they also pay a lot of taxes, so that's only fair. And when you lower taxes in general, okay, the economy will be goosed, right? Right. I think there's more, they're, they're saying there's been more money, right? They're like, they're spending more, there's more money throughout the economy. It's trickled down. Right. And I, I think the last, you know, 15 years have brought obviously a tremendous amount of skepticism about this idea. There were two big tax cuts passed in the early part of the 2000s. We still ended up with a huge financial crisis and we still ended up with a huge inequality problem as the developed world has in general. And so, it seems like now is a pretty good time for what, what's being called like the reformacons, right? The conservatives that are essentially saying, well, hang on a minute. This sort of low tax across the board agenda might not work. What might work is something that targets the middle class and something that acknowledges that it's okay for rich people and companies to pay a little bit more. Now, I want to emphasize, I'm not commenting on the merits of that idea. I'm wondering if the time is now, the time is ripe for that idea to take hold within the Republican Party? Well, I think it depends partially on how influential we see Donald Trump being, right? So we've already seen him influence the Republican debate, say, on immigration, right? I mean, the people, people are taking positions and having to respond to things that he said. Are we going to see the same thing on the economy? Because he is out there saying, actually, we should be taxing the rich more. I'm rich. I should be paying more. You know, he wants to go after hedge funds. You know, th these are not things you would normally expect to see traditionally from a Republican candidate. And entitlements, too, though. He's made the right noises on that in terms, well, I say the right noises. For the Republicans, it might be the wrong noises. Right. But he's made the right noises to people who receive entitlements, to people who want their Social Security protected, Medicare, Medicaid, and all that. He's actually been pretty mild on that. He's what you might even call a moderate <laughs> candidate on those issues right. specifically. In other words, he's definitely not a moderate on immigration, as you just mentioned. And we should note that that is very much an economic issue. Right, right. right? Same thing with trade. Not a moderate, all right? right. He's threatened tariffs. He's threatened barriers. He's, well, he, threatened, he's not you know, going to eat Oreos anymore, right? Because yeah. they're moving their plants to Mexico. I mean, but but does really does he have a coherent platform? I think is part of the question. Well, you know, across we, the board, he doesn't have a specific platform, <laughs> right? I think I think part of part of the appeal to this point, and I'm not, I don't want to comment on like the potential sustainability of it. I think there's still a good chance that it'll implode or whatever. But part of the appeal to this point is that the Republicans, I think, might have underestimated the extent to which a large share of their base actually agrees with him on some of this stuff. In other yeah. words, they're not so worried about lowering high-end marginal tax rates, right? They're worried about their jobs. And they're angry or they're, they're blaming, falsely or not, okay, I don't know what you want to call it, uh, a certain cosmopolitanism. They, they worry that trade will take their jobs. They worry that immigrants will take right. their well, jobs. Right, well, that's where a lot of the support for his right. positions on immigration have come from, right? It's for people who are saying, like, we see our jobs being taken. 
Sure. Right. I, I think, I, I, Those are by the way, issues. right. And by the way, in, in the process of talking about this and we're trying to observe it, uh, <laughs> I, should, I should have some full disclosure on immigration and trade. I really find his views repugnant, right? I think these are, these are things that are bad for the U.S. economy in the long run. I think it's short-sighted. Um, I think it is appealing to a certain lowest common denominator belief that the U.S. isn't strong enough to embrace immigrants or to have trade. And I, I find it a little bit unfortunate, but I'm not that part of the Republican base. And actually, it's pretty big. And the question then is, is he appealing to a fairly significant part of the Republican base while everybody else is having to split, right, the rest of the Republican base among 16 or however many candidates are left? And once the, the rest of the Republican base starts to consolidate around one of those, will Trump's numbers hold up? That's right. a different question. Right. Yeah. No, that's a different question. And the problem is, I don't think anything that we saw last night, like, can, we can draw any conclusions from on, to answer that because that was just absent in a way, right? Right. Okay. Let's talk about the debate because I know you've got all these awesome numbers for us. Okay. What were the big moments that we should be discussing right now? Right. So, so... It, what's kind of interesting in today's era of social media is, you know, we have these sort of real-time focus groups in Facebook and Twitter and, you know, other platforms where people are discussing. Um, so uh, I have some data from Facebook, the top social moments of the debate, so sort of the people were most engaged, most talking about. Uh, number one, Carly Fiorina responds to Donald Trump's comments and her appearance. As yes. you might remember, he said people wouldn't vote for that face. And then last night he said, oh, she's beautiful. And, you know, she it cut it, immediately to commercial break <laughs> because it was a little uncomfortable. Totally uncomfortable. Well, and I thought, you know, her response, her response is, you know, what I think the, you know, the women in America, like they knew what he said. So yeah. which got a huge applause line. Second was Donald Trump, Carly Fiorina and Chris Christie debate the merits of their business track records. Slightly more substance there. But again, it's a lot of this is, you know, Donald Trump sort of proclaiming that he is a genius at business and, you know, really hitting on Fiorina over HP and the record there and the job cuts. And he had a good news peg to that. So, you know, it kind of, again, maybe slightly more substance, but not really, you know, at the, in the end, that's kind of really just an insult throwing, being thrown back and forth. You know what I liked about that part, by the way, was it right after they had this back and forth on their business track records, Chris Christie interjected that actually the American people don't want to hear about that. They want to hear about their thing. And I was like, here's Chris Christie trying to take the above the fray high ground. Right. Okay. That could not have been a comfortable place for him to be. That is not where he often not finds familiar. himself. Not he familiar. loves getting dirty with people. Okay. And then number three was uh, yet again, Donald Trump criticizes Rand Paul's appearance. But again, that's, those are sort of that, you know, that's stuff that gets talked about. Those are the zingers, you know, those moments where people kind of get excited or they laugh. They think it's funny, um, but that doesn't necessarily like tell us, you know, a huge amount about how these people are going to govern. Now, interestingly, I mean, in terms of the issues, like the issues that came up on the, in discussions on Facebook during the debate, you know, the top issues were immigration, the economy, Iran, racial issues, and Iraq, Syria, and ISIS. So right. there's an appetite. I mean, people want to talk about these things and people, you know, want to, want to hear, I think, the candidates talk about these things. But it still seems there's a bit of a gulf between that and the actual you know, substance of what's being said. Yeah. And I, I guess part of the issue is that it's just hard to, it's hard to enforce the right issue, or it's hard to force the candidates to speak to the right issues when there's 11 of them up on the stage. Right. Exactly. You know? so it's, a, it's, tr it's a tremendous moderation challenge. I should say the moderator of the debate, Jake Tapper, 
normally a very good anchor, normally a very good journalist, right? Mm -hmm. This was not a shining moment for him, I don't think. But again, they were going for, you know, they they wanted it to be as contentious as possible. I mean, that was very, they were open about that. You know, they were hoping it was going to be fireworks. And, you know, that's kind of what they've, that's what all of the networks have been getting, you know, thus far from Trump. Now, we have like, what, 15 more debates? Yeah. (laughs) So we'll see what happens. But, you know, certainly as long as as Donald Trump is in the mix, I think you're going to kind of continue to see this sort of, you know, this kind of positioning because ultimately, you know, that's what the networks want. You know, for Trump, you know, it's all about, you know, the, his one-liners, whether it's in person at a debate or, you know, on on Twitter. I mean, that's where he's, you know, generating momentum and sort of, you know, his whole thing is speaking his mind and this is him speaking his mind. Yeah, you raise a good point too because I've always found it very difficult to know in real time how a performance on, on one of these debates um, is actually playing to the public, mm-hmm. right? I've been wrong about this so many times where I'll watch a debate or I'll, you know, or I'll see, a, you know, a, an ad for a candidate or something like that and mm-hmm. think this isn't going to work and just been totally baffled by how the public has reacted afterwards because the things that those of us who follow this for a living, the pundits, the journalists and all that, the things that we're looking out for aren't always the things that the general public wants. I think right. we have to show a certain amount of humility. So last night I came away thinking that Marco Rubio and Carly Fiorina did a great job, that they were fast on their feet, mm-hmm. they were articulate, they were to the point, mm-hmm. right? I thought Jeb Bush was kind of lackluster and weak. I thought Donald Trump was on his, you know, was on his heels most of the time, right? Yeah, or for, he, for much of the time. Yeah. Um, well, but, I mean, everyone was hitting hitting back at him in a way. The last debate, there was much more of a, like, hands, hands off, maybe we don't engage, don't sort of don't provoke him. Right. And this one, it was definitely, like, we have to hit him because I think they're all terrified, right? Yeah. I mean, look at his look at his lead in the polls and whether that, you know, we can have an argument about whether that's sustainable, you know, <laughs> into next November. But, you know, where they are right now, you know, they, they are realized they have to pop this bubble. But but again, after the last debate, I thought that Trump's poll numbers might go down after they saw how nasty he was right. and sort of were exposed to his ridiculous personality for the first time. I was totally wrong about that. And I might be wrong again, right? For all I know, you know, the winner of last night's debate was like Jeb Bush or Mike Huckabee or something like that. I just don't know. We'll have to wait to find out. It was fun to watch for about 20 minutes, right? (laughs) That's kind of all you really need. Yeah. The last two hours and 40 minutes were gratuitous, you know? (laughs) So I, and I wonder if the audience, uh, I wonder if the audience will agree. One last thing. Ben Carson, who I think has been kind of a surprise to a lot of people how well he's done in the polls as well. Yep. All right. Kind of a laid back speaker, neurosurgeon, all right, obviously a very smart guy, and has appealed quite a bit to the Republican Party as well or to the Republican voters. Yeah. Again, um, another perceived as an outsider, sort of seen as not a career politician going into that sort of appealing. Right. And comes off as very genuine as well. Had this intriguing moment in the debate on Wednesday a back and forth with Donald Trump on the extent to which vaccines lead to autism. Right. By the way, they don't. Okay. But what happened there? Well, so Trump, among his many positions that may or may not be based in fact, um, you know, Trump has kind of come out and this is well predates his his entrance into the presidential campaign. Um, but he's, you know, come out as an anti-vaxxer. You know, he's sort of repeated these now discredited studies linking vaccines and autism, did the same thing last night. And Ben Carson is like, well, I'm a doctor. And actually, you know, here are the here is the scientific truth of this. But, you know, this is, you know, kind of, again, one of these areas where you'd think Trump would be hurt by 
you know, sort of being confronted with facts or, you know, this idea, you know, he's challenging, you know, a doctor who presumably would know more, but sort of the, 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 self, the I don't know, the self-confidence of Trump, right, that he is just like correct on anything. Like if he says it, it must be correct. I mean, there was that other moment with Jeb Bush where, you know, when Jeb Bush was you know saying that Trump had been lobbying him over casino gambling in, in Florida and that, you know, then he had been you know, giving him money for uh, donating to his uh, gubernatorial campaign because he wanted Bush to legalize it. And Trump was like, well, no, I never did that. And if I did, we w- it would have happened because basically, you know, he's saying whatever I want happens. Right. Like, whatever I say is true. I so, get what I want. Yeah. And, in the, and again, you think that He's a winner and everybody else is a loser. <laughs> right. Well, you think for other candidates, they kind of, they really can't get away with taking those kind of positions. But, he, you know, he occupies this sort of other role. Like, I mean, people he, people do see him as entertainer. And it, it that clearly colors, you know, how they view him and how they kind of, kind of letting him get away with some of these things. There was a moment where Trump essentially tried to walk back his position, his earlier position on the vaccines and autism issue after he'd been challenged on it by Carson. Carson, of course, said there have been a lot of studies, and there have been, showing no correlation between vaccines and autism, right? This is a discredited meme, right? And Trump said, well, look, I just want to say that we, sh- we could do it differently, that uh, maybe kids should be given smaller doses over a longer period of time. He was actually trying to act as if he were a doctor. Right, right. And I, I don't know. I don't know to what extent you need any more insight into the Trump psychology. Maybe that was just one more example that you can layer on. But anyways, at least it was a genuinely interesting part of a debate that had too few of those. Shannon Bond, stick around, okay, because you're actually on the second segment today, coming up right now. Thanks, Carter. Moving right along on the show, our second segment is the social media challenge to Hollywood is the moment finally here. Shannon Bond is staying with us and joining us on the line from San Francisco is Hannah Kutzler. Hannah, your debut on Alpha Chat. Very exciting. If Shannon Bond has dulcet tones, you have a mellifluous voice. Does that work? I think I just have the English equivalent, right? Okay. You and Shannon wrote this story earlier this week. It's about how YouTube stars are rising in prominence and how someday this might present a threat to the way movies work right now. But I want to start by asking you about Smosh the Movie. What is it, first of all, and what role does it play in this story? Okay, all right. Well, I hope you won't ask me for the the whole plot because I've actually not watched it, <laughs> um, I have to admit. But um, so Smosh the Movie was a movie by two very famous YouTubers. And these are these creators, you know, who tend to be have started at least as kids in their bedroom and then, you know, build these big followings on YouTube through short form videos. Anyway, these guys who are Anthony Padilla and Ian Hecox, they have 21 million followers on YouTube and they made a movie this summer. It premiered at VidCon which is this online video conference in LA which I had the pleasure slash complete freaking out of going to. (laughs) Very weird full of screaming teenagers this summer and then it went straight to number one in the iTunes charts for comedy movies. 21 million followers and they built this up on their own like making YouTube videos in their in their garage or something. Yeah, I mean, 
the way it tends to work is is you you start on your own, do it. You know, amazingly, the kind of equipment that you need these days isn't very expensive or advanced. And so, you know, a kid with a video camera can become very powerful. Now, then they joined a multi-channel network, which is what a lot of YouTube stars end up doing. And those... Uh, those companies, theirs is called Awesomeness. That's a very popular one. The others are like Maker and Full Screen. They each do something slightly different, but they basically support the stars. They help build their brands. They take a cut. They do some of the contracts. And Awesomeness has tried to specialize also in making these longer form and movie length videos. So this is fascinating because in some sense, Hannah, this this used to be known as independent filmmaking. Now it's basically just a couple of people with very kind of low budget tools doing this, but then finding a way to commercialize it. Or I guess it's probably more accurate to say that these companies, you mentioned Awesomeness TV, that are like talent agencies or smaller production companies of their own, they find these guys and they build them up even further. What, what exactly do they do for these stars? Yeah, so so they do build them up further. Some of them came out of uh, sort of a more of a talent agency model. So, you know, they used to represent Hollywood stars and now some of them represent these digital stars. Others focus on, you know, music or they focus on live events. You know, some of these YouTube stars go on tours around the country and um, make a lot of money that way so each has a slightly different approach but it's fair to say that most of the major youtube stars now couldn't do without the backing of one of these companies okay and shannon i mean I, in addition to finding this a very like feel-good story of like a couple of you know inventive people just kind of tinkering around and then becoming big hits let's talk about the, the where this fits into like the bigger movie landscape i mean are big studios looking at this and wondering if they present a threat or are they thinking, well, maybe I can get in on the action? I think it's probably more the latter. So first of all, we should say that some of, some of the uh, multi-channel networks that Hannah referred to you know, are either owned by big media companies. So Maker Studios is owned by Disney. In the case of Awesomeness, they have DreamWorks Animation and Hearst as investors. So, you know, they, there's definitely, they have a stake and they're really interested, you know, those big companies are very interested to like have their you know, their finger in this, to both to sort of you know help their own businesses and to potentially see what the next generation of stars is. In terms of the actual kind of the way the Hollywood model works, I mean, for like a big blockbuster movie, you know, you're gonna put the movie out in the theater. You're gonna sort of do the traditional thing where we talk about the box office take and you know movies like Jurassic World or Transformers that you know do Massive huge globally, you know, billion, billion dollars, dollars globally. Yeah. This is not kind of what what this is about. I mean, these are these movies are small. I mean, their their online audiences are large. You know, kind of the movies themselves, like they're not going to be they're not going to kind of you know dominate the the weekend uh, cinema like down the street. But what they are doing, what's interesting here, you know, that YouTube's trying to do is say, if you have a smaller movie, they can actually be quite expensive to release that in theaters. It's not you're not going to earn that kind of box office. So actually it often costs you to release your, your movie in a theater. And the way you ultimately make money off the movie is you know selling it. So whether it's you license it to Netflix or you sell it directly on iTunes, in the old days you would have sold DVDs, YouTube is saying, well, you can skip the theater and you can release the movie on YouTube. that will give you a big platform. It's free. Anybody can watch it. It can be ad supported. We'll give you a cut of the ads. And then you can turn around and sell it on iTunes. So you kind of get a revenue stream that way as well. And I guess it, it has a potential to, to have a kind of a feedback effect as well, where these guys have 20 million followers and then they release this movie 
on YouTube that a lot of other people see, especially if it's going to be advertised and they yep. have the help of these agencies. And then all of a sudden, their 20 million followers become 30 million. million yeah, followers. and in some of these, you've seen you see stars, you know, who each have big followings on their own rights, teaming up on a movie. So then they're even you know, further expanding their audience. Yeah, and Hannah, you know, you mentioned uh, running into these stars at a conference earlier. Do we have a sense of the commercial potential for this idea? Because uh, there are quite a few examples in your story. And I guess I'm, I'm wondering if this is part of a genuinely big trend or a burgeoning trend, or if you think that this will stay a, kind of at a smaller scale. So I think that, you know, these, these YouTube stars aren't going to become movie-only stars. Movies is going to be one thing that they do. What we're seeing is this, as you said, a kind of a feedback loop that, you know, if you, you know, you start by doing your videos on YouTube, but then you get opportunities elsewhere, whether that be making movies or going on tour or some of these stars have their own merchandise. An awful lot of them do deals with brands to promote brands on their channels. And then they also have Snapchat accounts and Vine accounts and Instagram accounts and it's all a loop of sort of self-marketing and you you know you might pick up a follower on Snapchat or a follower who goes to the live events and you, you bring it all together so movies are just going to be one part of this I think and are the production values on these pretty good I haven't seen any myself but you know could these compete with in terms of the, the feel the look of it does it look like a, a well-done professional product so I've watched an awful lot of their trailers. Um, okay. Yeah, th yeah, they it does. You know, we're not talking about you know spotting things falling over and sets falling apart and things like that. Um, but it's interesting when you mentioned independent movies earlier because in a way, actually, what what I feel from the ones that I've seen bits of is these aren't, you know, the kind of classic independent movie, which is all sort of intellectual and interesting and a subject that no one would address. I mean, Smosh the Movie is like about them, you know, f this embarrassing video leaking on YouTube and they have to go through the whole of YouTube to, to find it, to stop it, because otherwise the girl he has a crush on will never fancy him. You know, it, it's, right. it's a teen movie. I don't know. It sounds pretty good. <laughs> so uh, one final question uh, for both of you, actually. I, I guess I, I wonder how to think about this within the competitive landscape of online video, because one thing I thought of immediately was essentially like what Netflix is doing with, you know, it's funding all of its own well-produced movies and miniseries and things like that. And I wonder if this occupies like somewhere on that competitive landscape or if this is just sort of a, a complementary thing. It's one more thing that's available out there. It's just part of, you know, this wonderful variety of things that we now have available to us. Well, I think, I mean, what's interesting, frankly, whether you're a YouTube star or you're a, you know, a, a Hollywood movie maker, you're a Hollywood star, Hollywood director, screenwriter, you just have so many more options now. You have Netflix, you're spending a huge amount of money on original content. You have Amazon doing the same. You, know, you have more and more platforms. And so there's a lot of creative options there. There's a lot of mon just money available there to make, you know, to make these things in different ways, potentially with more creative freedom in some cases. And you know, I think that you know, in the case of, of the YouTube stars in particular, we've seen you know, there are more options for them. You know, Facebook is pushed heavily into video. There's a company called Vessel that does, you know, sort of subscription short form video that's been, you know, trying to lure YouTube stars by saying, look, we'll give you a cut of the subscription revenue. You know, you can you can do premium stuff for your your super fans. And, you know, sort of for YouTube to be saying, like, you know, we're, we can have your movies here. You can do all this stuff. You know, they just they want to make sure they have a strong relationship and kind of defend that relationship that they have with the stars. Hannah, what do you think? 
Yeah, I, mean, I think that it's interesting that YouTube is getting into this for a while. You know, YouTube is owned by Google. It was seen as, a, you know, a tech platform. It was very good at the sort of back-breaking internet work of delivering loads of videos fast, especially to mobiles. But now it is getting into being a bit more of a media company. It's valuing its relationship with these creators. So last week was when it announced that it was making its own its first ever movie which is dance camp featuring a couple of youtubers and it's also working on original content but it hasn't really sort of told us much about what that is yet so that'll be interesting it's also preparing to launch a subscription product so youtube is thinking about ways where it could compete with uh, netflix but i don't feel like it's sort of running in that wholeheartedly because it has a pretty good business where it stands at the moment yeah okay i said that last one was the last question actually this is the last question hannah it's for you um i forgot to ask about facebook which does a, you know, it has a tremendous amount of uh, eyeballs on its videos uh, is this something that facebook could potentially be interested in as well it is. So I actually, when I went to this VidCon conference in July, I went into it thinking, goodness, Facebook could disrupt this. They have 4 billion videos a day. They have this massive 1.49 billion monthly active user base. Why couldn't they do this? I think it's a different thing because you can't, you know, you can't search for a video on Facebook. It's a great way to go viral, but it's not, you know, it's not a way to find a video. You know, YouTube is still almost the Google of video in that sense. It's not. And I don't think that they are yet prioritizing their relationship with these creators most of the video on on Facebook either comes from you know major publishers who they've been doing deals with or from you know you and I uploading you know pictures of our cat or our toddler or whatever all right Hannah Kutzer in San Francisco Shannon Bond here at the studio in New York thanks so much to both of you thank you thanks Carter And finally, on the podcast, the Federal Reserve decides not to raise rates. I can't believe we're doing this again. Matt Klein, my colleague on Alphaville, joins me for a quick, 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 Matt, discussion, because I'm tired of this, about the Fed's decision not to raise rates. What do you think? I remember back when I first started working in the financial sector in 2009, 2010, and people then were wondering about when the Fed was going to raise rates. They were expecting it to be, some people were expecting it to be quick, and they were asking us to model how they should adjust their long-term investments. It's been a long time since then. Uh, you know, the economy certainly changed a lot, but if they're looking at things like the inflation outlook, which is what Yellen said at the press conference, there's not any really any reason necessarily why they want to be raising rates anytime soon. Sure. Let's explain that for a minute. Let's unpack that for a minute. So we have now a situation where the U.S. economy seems to be growing at a fairly healthy clip, at least in the second quarter. And at the same time, the labor market is still growing, doing pretty well. Wage growth is weak, but inflation really seems to be the ballgame right now. In other words, the unemployment rate is within the range of estimates for the Fed's so-called natural rate of unemployment. In other words, the sustainable rate of unemployment beneath which it would lead to higher wages and thus higher inflation, right? That's sort of all in theory. But inflation right now is very low. It's below the Fed's target of 2%. It's growing, I think, over the past year at only 0.2%. A lot of that has to do with the fall in the oil price. But at the same time, the Fed has been missing on its inflation target for the better part of a half decade. And it seems like what Janet Yellen is saying is that the real economy, real growth, seems fine right now, good enough for them to consider raising rates. They're waiting for a sign that inflation will get back to its target. Do you largely agree with that? That's certainly what she said. I mean, the interesting question, you know, if we're just going to step back and be a little more philosophical, is why would they even care what inflation is going to be? I mean, traditionally, the argument is that inflation is too fast. 
then you have problems with capital misallocation, risk premiums, that's bad for the economy, inflation is too slow, you have problems with debt service and all this other stuff. But if the real economy seems to be chugging along okay, then you know what problem are we trying to solve here would be my question. I guess another way of looking at it being a little more contrarian is it's certainly true that for the past five years, the Fed has consistently undershot inflation, or at least inf- whether the Fed is undershot or whatever, inflation has been below the Fed's target for the past right. five years. If you go a longer time horizon, though, it's actually basically on the money. The past 10 years, it's been like 1.8, 1.9%, which, you know, you can say it's pretty good. I mean, inflation was way too too fast in, in terms of the 2% target for much of the pre-Great Recession period. So you could argue this is just, you know, natural catching up and, you know, overshoot one side, overshoot the other side, averages out to two. Yeah, although I think the it's been missing for the last 20 years, right? If you actually go through that period and you go all the way back to 1996 or whatever, it's still like 1.7% or something like that. As yeah. uh, Justin Lahart of the Wall Street right. Journal just pointed out to us, that's interesting. So listen, here's another question though is, to what extent does it matter whether or not the Fed raised today versus raising in October versus raising in December? It's still a small increment and it's still just you know six or 12 weeks apart. So here's the thing. Does that signal something about the Fed's priorities, or should we be more focused on what the Fed is saying about the subsequent path of rate hikes after this first one? So I guess the short answer is they both matter. Uh, Tim Dewey made this point that, you know, in blogger and of itself, economist right, he's, he's a blogger, he's a professor at the uh, University of Oregon. Uh, he made this point, which is that even though in and of itself there's not much of an impact from raising the rates today versus next month, it does tell you about how they think about things. And that sort of a, ought to change your assessment for how they view the trade-off to inflation and growth and financial stability where we're going forward. At the same time, I think what really does matter, what the Fed has said matters, is this longer-term path. I mean, that's what affects ostensibly longer-term interest rates. Longer-term interest rates affect things like the discount rate on equities and investment decisions. So that's what really matters. And what's interesting from today, what we've seen not just today, but consistently, is this, this steady downgrade in what the Fed policymakers think is the long-term rate of the Fed funds from like 4%, now it's 3.5%, which is consistent with falling long-term interest rates. It's consistent with what you might call the secular stagnation thesis. It's consistent with slower growth going forward and lower bond yields and, you know, possibly, you know, the QE4 next time there's a recession. Okay, final question, because to be honest, I want to get the hell, as much as I enjoy your company, I want to get the hell out of this segment because I'm kind of tired of talking about it this week, okay? Final question is this. Janet Yellen brought up global economic developments and how they've impacted the U.S. economy and U.S. financial markets. This was interesting, the extent to which she emphasized this. In other words, the idea that the Fed is taking a somewhat more cosmopolitan view or just the simple idea that the Fed is worried about how those economic developments will redound to the U.S. economy, how those things will affect how we do here. Do you think this signals uh, something different, something going forward that suggests that, well, okay, now the Fed is paying more careful attention to what's happening overseas in China specifically? It's definitely interesting. And I'm not sure I fully understand it, to be honest, because the stuff that's happening, particularly in China, doesn't actually have much direct flow through to the U.S. economy. It's not as if they're, they're imports of our goods as a major source of you know, U.S. production. She mentioned Canada, which is America's biggest trade partner, uh, which I thought was kind of amusing. But, you know, you could talk about the strength of the dollar relative to Europe and Japan. That is somewhat more significant. I guess one parallel we can look at is that in 97 and 98, the Fed first didn't raise rates and then subsequently cut rates in part because of conditions abroad, even when domestic conditions arguably should have been calling for significant rate heights. Uh, So there's some parallel there. On the other hand, the Fed wasn't exactly put off by pleas from emerging market central bankers in 2010, 2011, not to do QE. 
Uh, so you could say there's some asymmetry in their concerns about what's going on abroad. Okay. Matt Klein, thanks as always. Thank you for having me. And finally, for the first time since the start of the summer, the follow-up segment with Amelia Mahasik, who's here to tell me all the ways that I could be better. Amelia, welcome back. It's not that many ways you could be better, Carter. <laughs> a few a, ways, a, a few ways, the handful, the half dozen. Let me count the ways. You know, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, okay, so a summer's worth of podcast to catch up on. What stood out to you? I think you had some fantastic people on. I thought Joe Stiglitz was just a wonderful get. He's such a great and articulate brain. The one thing I would say from listening to all of the the podcasts about Wonkery and the markets and yes. Fed funds rate and future of the universe is that it's something that we struggle with at the FT generally, it seems, and you and I have discussed this, which is how to bring the real world to bear in market wonkery. Yes. And generally, you're really good at it. But as a whole, the FT is not great at it. So yes. one of our solutions we've discussed potentially is that we go to a shorter form and a longer form. We offer listeners both forms. Right. In other words, we separate the two things. We clearly define what we're about to do. So listeners can, you know, can yeah. get prepared and they can decide which one they like more. And perhaps this would be a good time for you to invite listeners to comment what they would like. Yeah, that's a good point. Listeners, Amelia's right. <laughs> what do you want us to do? Tell us, please. We're begging you. We want your feedback. Which 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 guests do you want as long-form conversationalists, and which segments do you want for the shorter, punchier, newsier segments that we have on Alpha Chat? That's a great point. I also like your point about how, you know, here at the FT, we can be quite jargon-laden in our discussions, and it's hard to capture, well, what does something like lower or higher interest rates mean for a normal person? You know, a normal person, of course, to distinguish between us dorks who work here, right? Well, I wouldn't go so far as that. But so I thought the Stiglitz discussion, for example, was really interesting once you started to get to real world things. Like, so really, he's about income inequality. And when you started to talk about how much an hour fast food workers get, you relate it back to something like that, then it's really interesting. When you're starting to have a discussion about neo neoliberal economics, then... Right. It gets oh. a little pie in the sky, a little abstract. Just a bit. A but, but I can see how there might be people who pay a lot of money for a Nobel Prize winning economist to explain that to them for an hour. True, so. true. That was partly also what frustrated me about the Republican presidential debate, which we discussed earlier, and that you and I watched together last night in the FT's offices while we were live blogging and keeping track of everything that was going on. I thought was that it? was a lot of fun. I know you. <laughs> it was excruciating for you. It was fun for me. I found it frustrating that so much of it was about like the candidates' personality issues, their business backgrounds, things like that. Not a lot of discussion about their policies and how those policies would actually help middle-income earners who are really worried about the economy still because, in fact, wages have been low and depressed for quite a while, and they're worried about what comes next. Not enough conversation about that. Just posturing. Exactly. All right. Amelia Mahasek, do you have more? I don't have more. Okay. Okay, great. <laughs> Amelia Mahasek, in the follow-up segment, awesome to have you back. Thank you, Cutter. And that's all the time we have for today's show. Once again, we'd love your feedback. Give us a call at 917-551-5012. And remember, you can leave us questions for Martin Wolf. We're going to be interviewing him next week. You can also email us at alphachat at ft.com. This podcast would crumble to the ground if it weren't for producer 
editor, Amy Keene. Thanks so much, Amy. And we'll see everybody back here next week for another episode of Alpha Chat. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com.